This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Rob Berger. When I'm not rolling in the dough, that's right, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamins Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and ever wondered about the secrets family and friends hide about their money? On today's show, we'll reveal a recent study featuring some interesting and often disturbing data. Are you normal? Maybe. Maybe not. But you're about to find out. Joining us from the Afford Anything podcast, it's Paula Pant. And from the Earn and Invest podcast, it's Doc G. And because nobody else from LenPenzo.com was available, once again, we could only scrape up LenPenzo. Plus, on our Friday FinTech segment, remember Clarity Money? Well, after they were purchased by Goldman Sachs, the app was merged into Marcus Insights. How did that all go down, and what's Marcus Insights about now? We'll talk to Melissa Manny from Marcus about the details. Later, we'll toss out the Haven Lifeline to Bill, who's got a question about the barbell approach. Don't worry, we'll break it down for you. And I'll bring things home with some Facebook-themed trivia. And now, a guy who's definitely ready for the weekend, which is when he hides his money, it's Joe Salcihan. I'm not at that age yet where I'm hiding money under the bed. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday. Let me be the first to welcome you. I'm Joe Salcihai, Average Joe Money on Twitter. This is our weekly roundtable episode, and I'm super happy to have the gang here with us. Let's first of all say hello to our guest who really is here so often. He's not really a guest. He's got a tent out behind mom's house. Mr. Doc G from Earn and Invest is here. How are you, man? So you're going to stop treating me like a guest? Like, <laughs> That's right. No more pulling the chair out, giving me a drink when I come down to the basement. I'm just a regular now. That's it. We got on this discussion call. We didn't say hello to you. <laughs> we just went right into it, man. Like, whatever. Let's record. Doc's here. How are you, man? Good, good. I, I can clearly see all niceties are gone, but, but I'm just is- happy to be here. And, and I'm happy for this, this wonderful 
piece of reading that you sent us for this episode because it's like 300 pages that I stayed up all last night reading. So I'm ready for our discussion. I did. We, we have some pieces that we talk about that struggle to be 500 words. And they're about how important is money and unicorns? This is not, not going to be that discussion. Well, anytime I could help put you to sleep with our, with our financial war and peace. And the guy who is deep under Los Angeles joining us, Mr. Lempenzo's here. How are you, man? Well, I'm exhausted too. Uh, like Doc G, I mean, that's a that was a long read, but it's a good read. So, uh, and I I'm anxious to get into it. I was thinking there's some disturbing numbers here, aren't there? Yeah, it's kind of uh, it is disturbing is a good way to put it, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, by the way, disturbing also is the glare on that head, man. You 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 recently got your hair cut. <laughs> well, one, I got them all cut, but uh, no, actually, I've actually there's nothing there, Joe. That's why you're. Uh, I, I, that's why you're. Talking I know, about- but I'm just saying it's a little shinier than normal. Oh, well, I guess it's the time for my monthly shower. So you know how that works. So I look good today. That's absolutely. And the woman who had to shower before coming on this podcast, I don't, I, I don't. Actually, she has to shower after these podcasts. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably better. Paula Pant from Afford Anything is here. How are you? I feel showered in love and attention and good vibes. Nice. Very good. But up, up. Way to bring that full circle. So are you ready for an in-depth discussion, Paula? I am. And I I like the fact that there is, like you said, a lot of substance to the piece that we're about to discuss. This is not some blogger who um, needed to to hit a word count (laughs) and, you know, essentially was wrote something that was uh, the equivalent of a bird pecking at a worm scented keyboard, you know, which is (laughs) no offense. But no, seriously, there are financial articles on the Internet that are like that. And this is not this um, has a lot of research behind it into aspects of people's financial lives that are often undiscussed. As a guy who's written one or two of those pieces before, (laughs) I don't like where you're aiming that. (laughs) she was looking at me joe (laughs) (laughs) but we are today talking about a piece uh, from a nonprofit called nonfiction they dive into some uh, ted talk style research on the secret lives of americans where the banking industry maybe is getting it wrong and what the future they hope looks like for us all when it comes to us and our money so let's dive into that but first All right, we got Paula here, Len here, Doc G is here. Let's roll into this this discussion. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. We're going to link to this entire 117-page piece on our show notes page (laughs) at stackingbenjamins.com. We won't be talking about it for 16 hours, but we will talk through this. The piece is in three parts. And our discussion will be in three parts. The first part is going to be about the secret lives of Americans. Uh, the people at nonfiction dove into asking people a lot of questions about their money. And there's some incredibly disturbing numbers in here. And Len, I think I'll start with you. Any of these numbers really jump out at you? 
How about all of them? I mean, the first one, the one that always gets me, and I saw this in the news recently, was the 44% of Americans can't handle $400 emergency without borrowing funds. I mean, when you consider $400, how many things in life cost more than $400 that just come up? You know, a set of tires or maybe a little bit more of a mechanical problem with your car, which you use to get to work. Something like that comes up and you don't have that to cover it. I mean, that is one of the most basic things that everybody should have. And 44% of Americans don't. Yeah. But Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, I think any need that you have, if you don't have $400 uh, ready to go, there's so many needs that can be unmet. Uh, Doc, surprising to you? Yeah. All of these numbers are surprising. And especially just given the fact that right now, we're looking at the recovery of what seems to be the shortest recession in, I think, recorded history, right? Two months coming from the pandemic. And we talk a lot about this K-shaped recovery. So you have a good deal of the population who was struggling, who's still really doing poorly. And then you have the other side, which just completely confuses things of people who are heavily invested in the stock market and doing better than ever. So, you know, when you look at the comparison, it's really shocking. 37% of Americans have gone to sleep hungry because they didn't have money. They've experienced that at some point. I know you could put me on that list before. Have have any of you been on that list at one time or another? No. I mean, I, you know, I hate to say it because, you know, when I look at something like that, the first thing I think of it is dieting because it's just so out of my realm of experience. Yeah, I've gone to bed hungry because I was trying to lose weight. Like I can't even fathom something that actually is common. 37% is huge. Paula, uh, any of these numbers that you'd like to shine a light on? The the one that surprised me is that 52% of Americans admit to having cried because they didn't have enough money, that their financial pressures uh, led them to tears, including 41% of people who earn over 200000 a year. Which shows, to me anyway, that making more money isn't necessarily the answer. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it's part of the answer. It's certainly all else being equal. It's better to make more than less. But it's what I would say necessary, but not sufficient. Crying over money, Len. I mean, there's some real financial hurt going on, not in America, but all over the world based on these numbers. Yeah. You know, if we can go back into the, the, the more is more money is is not necessarily better that there are so many people that I'm aware of who make well into six figures, some make seven figures and they can't make it work. And what that comes down to for them, it's spending. Whereas people on the other end of the scale, obviously it's income, but there is a point where you have to be able to control your, you have to be aware of your income and you have to know how much you're spending. And if you cannot control your spending when you're making a lot of money, you're no better off than the person who is making much less money and can't buy them what they want. You're both, they're both in the same boat. They are both tied to debt and they are both, they've got an issue where the income does not match the outgo. 12% of Americans admit to having stolen something because they didn't have enough money to buy it. Uh, Doc, does that number, that number seem right to you? Does that seem high, low? Yeah. You know, believe it or not, I almost think that seems a little bit low. I almost think that, that a higher percentage would. 
when you compare that to the 37%, how many people right now are hurting? We know that there was just a recent recession. We know that unemployment was low after the recession. It's coming back up. But, you know, you kind of do what you needed to survive. And so I guess I, I look at the 12 and I'm not surprised by it, but I, I wouldn't even be surprised if it was a little higher. When we talk about uh, borrowing money, 63% Americans have borrowed from family. 35% say they borrowed from friends. 17% say they borrowed from coworkers. Paula, there's nothing I could imagine more horrific for me than walking into work at my workplace and having to ask the person sitting in the next cube for some money. Um, well, unless it's you, because I know that you consider it a gift, not a loan. So I'm borrowing money from you all the time. <laughs> But, you know, the other the flip side of that is that that equal number of people um, or at least an equal number of incidents, I don't you know, there there may be multiple incidents per person have lent money. Right. If 63 percent of people have borrowed from family and friends, that means some corresponding equal number of incidents of family and friends have lent money to other family members. So um, the question that that opens up for me is, are people loaning money that they don't have? Why are the borrowers too, Paula? Why are they borrowing from family members, from uh, coworkers, or from friends? I mean, I think on the case of family, you think, well, borrowing money from family is fairly easy. It doesn't have a contract. But when it comes to your friendships and it comes to your coworkers, now I think that most of us would find that to be, I'd find that far harder. I remember when I was, when I was really screwed when it came to my money. If, if I had any way to borrow from a bank, I would have rather borrowed from a bank than from a friend. Mm -hmm. Easily yeah. would have rather borrowed from a bank. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or hold a balance on a, a credit card, get a credit card with a 0% teaser rate. I know people who've done that and, or people who have intentionally held balances for, you know, a year or two so that they wouldn't have to borrow from friends or family. You know, they, they pay a little bit of interest, but it was a deliberate decision so that that way they wouldn't be jeopardizing those relationships. Uh, I, I want to ask you guys this question just to lighten up this discussion for just a second. 35% of people on the survey said they give up sex for three months to earn a 10% raise. Now, on, on one hand, you think about that and it's not a laughing matter. But on the other hand, if I could get 10% more from work, Len, would you give up, would, would you give up sex for three months for a 10% well, raise? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, of course. Are you listening, boss? <laughs> you listening, honeybee? I, I would love to see a shoe come fly up at your head in the back of the head right now. That I would... mean, that's a 10% raise. I mean, who gets a 10% raise? I mean, that's, I mean, you know, most people are lucky if they get a three or a four or 5% raise for a 10% raise. Hell yeah. <laughs> Most of us though, think that we're not paid enough. In fact, doc, 64% of Americans suspect that they're underpaid. And yet you and I, we've all seen the statistics guys. Nobody does anything about it. Yeah. And this gets back to this whole idea of, you know, we have this one group of people who I think are struggling just to subsist. And then we have a huge other part of our population, which we would consider high earners who still feel like they don't have enough money. Now, some of that may be indeed that they're not being paid enough. But I think some of that, and this goes along with the people who are borrowing money too, are that they're kind of trying to philosophically use money to do something it wasn't meant to do, which is bring them some sense of happiness or completeness you know, we all know that you need a certain amount of money to subsist after you get to that point. 
everything is kind of extra. And I think we have two fundamentally different groups here. We have people who are struggling just to survive. And then the rest of the people who are unhappy with their money situations are people who are trying to use money to find a sense of happiness. It's not working because that's not really what money does. And I'm glad you're pivoting to that point because the second half is under all this pressure, Paula, that we have with money, we've cried about it. We go to bed hungry. We maybe have stolen all these statistics we just read. And yet there's all this pressure now to appear successful and social media. Oh my God. You know, every, every morning, my favorite thing to do is look at my Instagram feed, but there's nothing mm -hmm. that can make me on some days more depressed than my damn Instagram feed. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, and on Instagram and the, the curated sites that we see on social media, it's not just wealth, it's wealth, it's wealth, attractiveness, lifestyle. I mean, if you look at social media, it, it seems as though everyone's laundry is just magically done, you know, and their, their needs are just very taken care of and they wake up with full makeup on or, you know, a hairstyle or just impeccably dressed. And, you know, you don't see the work that goes on behind the scenes. You don't see the mundane, you like nobody ever posts a picture of themselves clipping their toenails. No, but, but let's talk about, well, you must've missed my, you must've missed that tweet I sent out. <laughs> there are some ways to go viral Ed, and that's not the, <laughs> not the, not the one we were looking for, but all of us, by the way, we, we have a brand, we have social media feeds and yet, I mean, let's just call this what it is. When I fired up my dad's shortwave radio, the only shortwave radio with video, I turned the camera a certain way. You can't see the fact that I have a bunch of stuff over here to the left of me that is in just a mess. Or if I turn the, I mean, I'm just going to turn the camera just a little bit. There's the door, which is not finished being constructed in our house. We do it. I'm reading this. I'm as guilty as the next person. And totally when I do an Instagram post, I don't go on unshaven. I don't go on in my old t-shirt that I'll wear around the house. I will get ready to give you Joe's life's perfect. Paula, I've seen your stuff. Yeah. You, you don't look like you just climbed out of bed and turned on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I do. I do exactly the same thing. Sometimes it'll, you know, I'll spend an hour getting my makeup like, and, and it's a whole process. I'm like, great. Moisturizer, then primer, then foundation, then concealer, then more. It's just, ooh, it's like such a process and so much to manage. Len applies three layers of oil to his head. Before he does, does stuff. I know it, it looks good though, doesn't it? It does look good. It's very handsome. Yeah. That's why I keep talking about it. Just product. It, <laughs> it's called product. Let's go through some of these pressure numbers just very briefly before we get to solutions. 28% of 18 to 24 year olds admit to posting to Instagram to make themselves look wealthier than they really are. That number to me feels low. Definitely. Definitely. I would expect it to be higher. And I think for all of us, you would kind of look at your own profiles and say, how much of this is unreal versus how much of this is putting our best for self forward. So, you know, when you go to a job interview, of course, you wear nice clothes, you get yourself ready and set. When you are talking about your business or your platform, it's one thing to put it in a good light, but it's completely other thing to be completely false in who you are or to show a lifestyle or personality traits that you don't have. And that that's kind of the, the different question, right? So I don't know. It, it's interesting because I think you can do social media well and be honest 
but I think a lot of people out there are portraying a lifestyle that's nowhere near what, what theirs really is. You know, Doc, I, I, as an old, the, one of the oldest of the Gen Xers out there and my Gen, looking at my Gen Z kids, particularly my daughter, who's just 21. And, and I know how they live for social media. And I have, I have been astounded at how I understand why, you know, mental health issues have been increasing almost time for time with when social media came out and the mental health thing started going, they look at the social media and it is, it's almost awful. I was shocked that kids or that they filter their photos. Like one day I was watching my daughter. I'm like, what are you doing to your photo? And she goes, oh, I'm, you know, I'm skinning my face. I'm doing that. I'm like, what are you, why are you doing that? I mean, it's just nothing is how it seems. And this just exacerbates the problem. It's like people are measuring themselves. They're trying to compare themselves to others. And financially, they're trying to be the Joneses when the Joneses aren't even there. And it's just, it's not healthy. You just got to fight that urge. Things aren't how they seem. They really aren't. And you've got to get some perspective on that. But it's so hard when everybody else is running that race. You know what? It is hard, Joe. Like, I think I gave this example one time before on your show, and I can't remember what, how much I offered my daughter, but I told, I offered, I think it was two or $300 for a week. I said, I will give you two or three. It was one of those $300 for a week. If you will give me your phone, that way you will stay away from social media for one week. And she refused. She, she asked, this is before she, she wouldn't do it. There's and this a, is when she was like 19 years old. She didn't even have her job. You know, I was like, wow. There's a story in this piece from Cosmopolitan about a woman who ran up $10,000 in debt trying to become an Instagram influencer. And I'm sure there's people who have run up more than $10,000 in debt with Instagram. In fact, another study here, 71% of 18 to 24-year-olds have bought something they don't need because, quote, they had to have it. 19 million Americans struggle with compulsive shopping disorder. I think those two have to be together. In fact, uh, Lisette Calviero is quoted here. And I love this quote. Nobody talks about finances on Instagram. I, I took, I was like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Have, have they seen my feed? <laughs> but, but seriously, Paula, I mean, we've talked about this before. There's nobody listening, right? You can put all of our Instagram numbers together, all of our well, podcast numbers together. And when Dave Ramsey has mm-hmm. probably the biggest audience of all of us and his number of listeners per episode. Some people say is in the 2 million range and there's 330 million people in the United States put his numbers with all of ours together. Nobody lists. That's right here. Nobody is talking about finance mm-hmm. on Instagram. No, I, I disagree that it's the opposite. What's interesting to me about the statement, nobody is talking about finance. She's putting that blame outside of herself. She's not looking for finance on Instagram. Almost every Instagram feed that I follow is a personal finance influencer. So my Instagram feed, I will, okay, there's a lot of cats also. There's cats, there's memes, and there's personal finance influencers. Those are the three like levels of feeds that I follow. You get what you search for. And if you don't search for finance, then don't turn around and say, nobody's talking about finance. There are but I would, I would love to see the percentage of finance related posters on Instagram versus everybody else. Oh, of course. Of course. It's a small vertical. Yes. But, but it, I agree but, you can go look for it, but the vast herd is not out there looking for it. So for her to say that no one is posting about it, what that tells me is that she isn't looking for it. And she's putting that ex, that locus of control outside of herself. Let's move. There's so much we can talk about there. But let's move into the second piece of this, which is 
banking and how banks may be missing the boat here. To your point, Paula, the start of the second of three pieces here, it says no one to talk to about money, mm. which is the opposite of, of, of course, what you're saying, that if you really want to go find it, that you can find it. But the piece says, we saw in part one, Americans are open to coaching and guidance in several key areas troubling them, evaluating if they're being paid fairly, maximizing their salary at their current job, planning career moves to grow household income, budgeting month to month, right-sizing their debt, planning affordable vacations, dealing with the spending pressures of status anxiety, having a holistic advisor to talk to about their entire financial life. Unfortunately, it says, not a single one of these services is being provided by the mainstream financial services industry, maybe by what we do, right? The money Mm -hmm. geek world, but by Mm -hmm. banks, they're leveling this really at banks. The banks aren't providing Mm -hmm. any of these services. Len, agree? Well, I think the banks aren't providing the services, but I disagree that the banks need to provide the services. I don't believe that's the bank's responsibility. The banks are providing a service on handling your money. But we there can- are others. Well, there are other avenues to learn, and I don't think it's fair to put it on the banks themselves. It's, we've mentioned there's a lot of free things out there right now. There's on there's plenty of information on the internet that you can go to. You don't, I don't know why the banks have to offer a service that you're going to pay for that you can get for free online. So I, I totally disagree with putting that on the banks. Do, do you agree with that, Paula? What I would say is that, you know, this report points to a hole in the market, right? And so whenever there is a hole in the market, then some entrepreneur can come along and fill that hole. So if this report is stating, hey, banks, here's an opportunity for you to fill a need, an unmet need in the market. Cool. You know, if they decide that that's a profitable venture and they can fill an unmet need and and that makes good sense for them, they'll do it. And if they don't, and there is genuinely an unmet need, there's unmet demand in the market. That's what entrepreneurship is for. Entrepreneurship is for meeting unmet demands. Doc, do you lay the blame for this at the foot of banks? Uh, You know, I don't. I mean, most banks are for-profit institutions and they want people who already have a lot of money (laughs) and they want people with a lot of money to come and put the money in their institution or to buy into their investments. I think you really got a lens issue here, right? So we know that there's all this great information out there because we're involved, like you said, in the money geek world. That information is out there, but most people aren't really listening to the money geek world. They are the millions and millions and millions of people out there who don't really know how to navigate these roads. And they're looking to commercial institutions to be the answer. But think about banks with their huge advertising budget and how much just a little counseling could help them put huge amounts of money into the bank if they took more of a helping people from the bottom up, right? Raise themselves up. Yeah. I feel like many of us get where we are despite the banking system. I'll certainly say Bank of America never helped me. There's a reason I talk trash about Bank of America. They suck and they did their best to help multiply my financial issues. I mean, some of the unnecessary fees and garbage uh, stuff, talking to middle managers who were completely unempowered was just disgusting to me. And I do lay that at the foot of the bank. And I think, Len, to your point that even though right now it's not the bank's job, 
that imagine if it, to, to, to what Paul is saying, what if, what if a bank said it was their job? Like, what if they looked at this as an opportunity to not just help somebody get a loan, but to show them how to pay it off so that later maybe they can take out a better loan, right? I mean, how many times over the years, Len, have we had questions about leverage and how people still don't understand some of these basic things? Yeah, that's, I guess that's fair. It's almost like a conflict of interest to me with the banks. I mean, like Doc G said, they are for for-profit institution. Then they're supposed to use that. I just think there's better avenues for people to go to to get the kind of information to know how to manage your money. For example, if I look in the executive summary of this report, it notes that it says while there's no primary care physicians for the average American, there's no personal CFO. Well, I found that interesting because – why not? I mean, everybody should be their own personal CFO to begin with, right? I've, I One of the main points of my philosophies is running your own household like a business. And my home is broken out. I have a CEO, a household CEO and a household CFO. And my the honeybee is the CFO. And she takes those duties and she uses those duties. So you can be your own personal CFO and it doesn't take a lot of education I mean, years and years of schooling to do that. You can do that just from getting information on the web. So I, you know, I don't think it's that big of an issue if you're willing to invest in yourself to learn, to put, just learn a few things. Yeah. I don't know though, Len, we do a TikTok uh, minute every Monday with some of the most absurd advice I've ever seen. Some of the biggest crap advice <laughs> I've seen has been on the internet. When, when I, I was I was frankly amazed by the dismal state of about half the information I found on the internet once I transferred from yes. responsible financial planner over to greatness meets garbage world of financial media. Yes. I mean, mm. you know, we were talking well, about that's it. like anything, right? That's like anything, Joe. I mean, you have to separate, yeah, you have to break you, out the noise from the, you, the signal, the noise. You have to read. You just have to read and you have, it will come to you. You will realize what the right answer is. If you read enough, if you read enough garbage and you read it, you will, 90% of people will be able to ferret out the good from the bad. They will. Paula agree? No, I disagree with that. I think that developing judgment, developing the judgment to be able to separate uh, the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad is incredibly hard. And that the way that the Internet is set up, the, the nature of the algorithms on any social platform is that whatever you're currently reading, you get served more of that. And so you go further down the echo chamber of whatever you're currently reading, which may or may not be a valuable perspective or, you know, even a grounded in reality perspective. How would a bank fix that? How would oh, a the bank difference? wouldn't fix that? So where, what's, how does how do you fix that? If people are not capable of, of reading on their own well, hold on. and, and hold separating on. the is, wheat from the chaff. Let's talk then, about what this then, piece, what this piece talks about, Len, because it does, Paula, talk about how a bank could potentially help solve this. This piece recommends that a bank could have a personal CFO type relationship with people. Now, immediately I kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, oh, a bank will definitely, Bank of America will help me with that. But listen to some of these things. Compensation consultant consults on whether, so my bank partners with a compensation consultant and consults on whether current salary is fair and on salary range for future roles and career plan and can help me with my career plan. So not just what I'm doing now, but helps me get my financial act together. Len, could you see a bank partnering with a career consultant? I'm sure they could. Yeah, absolutely. You could also go to salary.com and get that information off the internet. Or you can, you, there's plenty of salary comparison sites to see what your 
if you're fairly compensated or not for your experience. Paula? Sure, those websites exist, but they're algorithmically based and broad, and they can't respond to the nuances of your particular training, your skills, your location, the size and structure of your company, the design of the compensation package. And so certainly I think that having a compensation consultant who can deal with the specificities of your situation is much more valuable than going to some some plug and play website that just has generalized data. The issue, I, I guess, if so, would you get a compensation? Con- so that means you'd need a compensation consultant who's familiar with every possible occupation out there. No, actually, Otherwise- I think it's more they focus on knowing you first. This personal CFO knows you first intimately and then goes through this wide range of what I think actually, and I'm going to put my own stink on this, all the garbage on the internet and parses it down pairs it down just to the garbage <laughs> that suits me. So if salary.com suits me, so I can so help why you pay get there. some guy. Well, you, so you, so you're thinking some guy's going to parse garbage better than you could parse garbage and you're paying him it, to parse garbage. If, if his job is to do that all the time, he's going to parse mm-hmm. it way faster than I will. Like yeah. I could, I could Len, I'm a smart guy. I could build a car. I could totally build a car. It will run like shit. And it might make it down the road, but I could build it (laughs) or I can just go to one of these companies that builds it, pay them X amount of money and have a car that is reliable, dependable. So there's a bunch of stuff that I could do. So what you're saying is there's no value in it is what I hear you saying. No, what I'm saying is I'm giving people more credit. I don't think people out there are is, I mean, this is not rocket science coming from somebody who is in the rocket science business. This is not rocket science. It's personal finance. There's not a lot of real heavy things to know. It's not that difficult if you're willing to put in some time on your own and invest in yourself. Um, that's what I'm saying. If you're not, then of course, pay somebody to do it and they'll do the, the thing that you could have done yourself if you're willing to put the time in. I, I get that part. But this is not hard stuff. It really isn't. Doc, you've been quiet for a little bit, letting me play Paul and Len off each other because I've known them for a long time <laughs> and I'm definitely doing it on purpose for good radio. But, 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 but Doc, let's bring, let's bring you into this. What do you think? I think your average individual, I would say maybe 50% of individuals can do it on their own. I think, unfortunately, the other 50%, for whatever reason, regardless of that it's available, regardless of we think that it can be digestible, I think there's a lot of people who can't. The problem is currently most institutions out there are not really built to do that. They're built to make money. And at this point, they find that they can make money more by doing the traditional banking. Now, there are things like credit unions, which are owned by their members and who do spend a lot more time on education. If you're going to see something like, you know, a compensation consultant, you're going to see it in a credit union as opposed to a bank. So I think if you really are looking to have institutions like this, they're going to have to be owned by their members in such a way that it makes sense for them. They're going to have to be non-for-profits. This piece goes into talking about how even with certified financial planners right now, people are, there is a disconnect. People have a lot of questions about their money, basic questions about their money. And a CFP largely, even a fee only CFP often just wants to do the sexy part. They want to manage a portfolio and they're set up to manage their portfolio. There is this dearth of people out there that can answer basic financial questions. And you see companies 
like uh, Shannon McLay's financial gym, as an example, that are set up as kind of what these guys are talking about to fill that hole in the market. And yet you talk to Shannon Paula and things are growing and they're growing nicely, but to get out there in the mainstream with what she's trying to do and others like her, it's hard. Exactly. And I think you're starting to see the emergence of financial coaches. It's an unregulated field. They are not licensed and credentialed in the way that CFPs are. And that means that the quality and the knowledge of a financial coach is, you know, it's kind of like being a life coach. Anyone can call themselves that. And so how do you as a consumer, as somebody who would be hiring such a coach, how do you determine who's good and who's bad? There is an element of judgment there, but at a minimum, at least a financial coach could be the type of person who recommends to you, hey, if I don't have the expertise to be a compensation consultant, let me at least make you aware that this is a job class that exists so that when you do go for your uh, next round of job interviews, when you do transfer into a new field, let me connect you with some, with a compensation consultant that I know so that you can um, have a check on that as well. You know, like that type of financial coach who can refer you to to other specialists and who can fill you in on your unknown unknowns is, I think, a good kind of holistic, big picture oversight person in your corner. I stopped there, by the way. There were plenty of other things in this piece, which were, as an example, uh, when you go to get a loan, somebody teaching you more about how the loan works. I know a lot about how loans work, but on my house, I took out a mortgage and it was amazing to me still that knowing as much as I know that this person sat down across the table from Cheryl and I and just said, sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. And I did it. And it was a stack an inch thick of papers. And I didn't question one of those signatures, just signed them all. Don't get me wrong. I got the paperwork a day before, but the fact that there really was no impetus to teach me all that stuff. So having somebody do that to walk you through how much insurance you actually need instead of just the insurance that is offered by an insurance company. So somebody on your end, uh, uh, Len, you look totally unsatisfied. Just, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going home, Joe, right now. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's it. I'm done. No, this is a good discussion. And um, really we're getting back to a lot of this is coming down to, a lot of opinions and this personal finance is personal and there's lots of ways to do personal finance and there's lots of ways to handle it and come around to it. So it gets passionate. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah, no, it, absolutely. So my question for you is where is the disconnect then? Where's the disconnect? Because there's so many pressures that we set on people at the beginning of this piece, we get to the and their conclusion that major banking is missing what they see as a huge opportunity because they're, quote, not built that way. You say that we don't need it. So where is the disconnect between the way that we're acting as a society, the way we many people seem to be headed and well, let me management. let me get here's where the disconnect is really and I'm going to get really into it because you know, I've handled personal finance, but I really my focus is macroeconomics in the money world. And the disconnect is in the macroeconomics. And what I'm trying to say in, in really short, this this could be a whole hour show all into itself. As but if it's, the macro as if it's not already. Every, yeah. Well the <laughs> macroeconomics of it is right now is it makes life very difficult on a personal finance level right now for a lot of people. And no matter what they do, they are going to be they're going to have it very difficult right now just because of the way the macroeconomics sets up. And so people will try very hard in their personal finance. It's going to be a struggle for, all, you know, because the because of the macroeconomics. So that's where I think the disconnect is. And our takeaway then from this piece, Len, to wrap this up, I'll, I'll keep you on the on the hook here for a moment longer. 
<laughs> things are not as rosy and you're going to get, of course, you know, I know Joe's going to say, yep, yeah, that's Penzo right there. He's saying that, but things are not as rosy as they look. Don't judge a book by its cover. You can see somebody who's living in the, the biggest, you know, mansion on the nicest neighborhood and they could be struggling mightily. And to put a nice, uh, a, a silver lining around that, there are people who live very modestly that are doing very well who aren't making a lot of money. So, yeah, this piece seems to also make both of those points as well. We'll give our guest, Doc, the last word, if I can call you a guest here. Paula? <laughs> Takeaways from this piece. I would say not to feel financial shame or guilt because statistically speaking, the majority of Americans have at some point been stressed out enough about money that they've cried. And over a third of Americans have gone to bed hungry. So if you are feeling shame or guilt about a particular financial, like a stressful financial situation, know that you're very normal. You know, you're not alone. This is a common thing and you'll get through it. Doc? My takeaway from this piece and this conversation, and this will be a little controversial here, is I think that there are two groups. And I think one of the groups are people who probably will need some type of sociopolitical change in order to deal with their money issues, the macroeconomic problems that Len is talking about. And I think the other group is people who misplace the importance of money and what it's supposed to do for them. So find themselves unhappy with their money situation because they think money is going to get them something that it's not getting them. So I think you have those two distinct populations right now. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And uh, the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial.
Well, if it's Friday, and it is, that means it's time for our Friday FinTech segment where we take a look at something either on your phone or on the internet or a cool new product that uh, we didn't know existed that can maybe push forward your understanding and use of good money habits. And one that we debuted a few years ago was an app that I liked a ton called Clarity Money. It was developed by Adam Dell, who, yes, he's the brother of Michael Dell. Adam came on the show and talked about Clarity Money, and then I started using it, and it it was a great app. And then, bad news, I thought at the time, they were acquired by Goldman Sachs. That wasn't bad news, but then Goldman Sachs decided to retire Clarity Money, and they rolled it into something called Marcus Insights. So we wanted to hear all about that. I was wondering personally what was going to happen to one of my favorite money tracking apps and what this new Marcus Insights is all about it. So we reached out to Goldman Sachs and we have Melissa Manny from Goldman Sachs and Marcus coming down to the basement to describe to us exactly how this all happened. And then uh, to walk us through Marcus Insights, something else that's on your phone that sounds like it's born to be a lot of what Clarity Money was and more. So let's uh, let's dive in with Melissa Manny. And joining us here in the basement, it's our new friend, Melissa Manny, head of digital customer experience at Marcus by Goldman Sachs. How are you, Melissa? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that you could join us. And as a fan of, of Clarity Money, a guy that... Not only did we interview Adam Dell in the early days of Clarity Money, but I used it personally. Before we talk about Marcus Insights and really the changeover from Clarity Money to Marcus, tell me about those early days, because my understanding is you were with Clarity Money from the beginning? Yeah. So I joined Clarity Money in early 2017 when the app was in beta. It was super exciting being there from the beginning. So I think as you know, since you mentioned you're a Clarity Money user, the goal of Clarity Money was to be our user's financial champion. We just found that our feature set really resonated with customers from day one. Within the first couple of weeks, we were featured in the iOS app store. And so just started to get a ton of new users every day, which was so exciting because it meant we got a ton of feedback. We had a lot of data to see what people were doing and how they were engaging. So it was a really amazing ride, You know, learned a ton We were moving really, really fast and ended up getting acquired by Marcus by Goldman Sachs in uh, the spring of 2018. I was going to I was going to ask, Melissa, not to cut you off, but we're all curious about that. Like one day, does the phone just ring and and, and people say, hey, it's uh, Goldman Sachs on the other end and you think it's a prank call or do you remember that time? Yeah, well, it's funny that you say that because sometimes, you know, in a startup, we were all always sitting in different seats and we were growing so quickly that people were trying to find seats. And sometimes the phone would ring and we'd all look at each other and be like, whose job is it to answer the phone? <laughs> right. Um, right. But yes, I do remember when Adam started to to talk to Goldman Sachs and conversations were progressing and it was really exciting for a number of reasons. But I would say what was most exciting is that the Marcus mission 
of really helping, you know, millions of users achieve and, and be on the path towards better financial health was so closely aligned with Clarity Money's mission. And I think when you join a startup that's mission oriented and you want to see it grow, and of course, it's very exciting when there's a, a potential acquisition, but you worry about sort of that vision getting diluted. Um, and so it was particularly exciting that we really felt like we were going to continue to be on that path that we had set forth on. That's fantastic. And I bet that that you were thrilled and based on everything we know about Marcus, it sure seems like it was a good fit from the outside looking in. But tell me about then the decision to retire the name Clarity Money and to go further into integration. How long did those talks take and, and how did that end up happening? I think it was an evolution of, again, just really thinking through we have a lot of customers. We have a lot of customers who, you know, on the Clarity Money side. We have obviously millions of customers on the market side. We want to do our best at creating features and tools and products that help those users achieve financial health and that, you know, they feel great about using. Um, and it just became kind of clearer and clearer that the best way to do that was actually to centralize the team, centralize our efforts into one platform, you know, one set of apps and and a website. It maybe took us a little while to get there, but once we did, it just felt like that was the best way to roll forward all of the learnings, you know, we've always had on the clarity money side and certainly on the market side a culture of kind of co-creating things with our customers. So we benefit from having really rich input. It's sort of easiest to to make headway on a roadmap when you're you're really focused, and so that was really what informed that decision. Good news then for Clarity Money users. Uh, man, I'm I'm using Marcus Insights now, Melissa, and I don't use all the FinTech Friday apps, but I happen to use Marcus Insights, which it feels a lot like Clarity Money. Like there is a bunch of Clarity Money inside of this new Marcus tool. Yeah, great observation, and I would say that was very purposeful. Number one, you know, a lot of the team is still here, myself included, and so. You have a lot of the expertise, the technology, the data science kind of powering the Marcus Insights features in the same way as, as on Clarity Money. We really looked at bringing over some of our most used, best loved features, but I don't know if, if you've noticed it, but we've made some subtle uplift to a lot of the features based on some of that feedback. You know, a couple of examples we definitely heard from our customers that they really were hungry to see more information around their investment accounts. So that's something that we really invested in on, on the Marcus Insight side. The treatment of kind of recurring expenses and subscriptions is a little bit more interwoven into the features themselves versus sort of being standalone. And so we took the feedback from our Clarity Money users, which they were a very kind of active community and, and often communicated through, to us through various channels and in their app stores reviews about what was working and what they wanted to see more of. We also talked to thousands of Marcus customers and prospects. And so we really tried to bring them over, but also, you know, make improvements along the way that would enrich their value to our customers. Whenever I, I talk to insiders in fintech, I love this next part of the interview, which is walking people through how the experience works for all of our listeners that that don't use Marcus Insights. Let's just start from the beginning, Melissa. Is it yep. an app? Do I go to the app store or do I go online? How do I sign up to use it? And do I have to be a Marcus customer to use it? Yeah, we're super excited that these tools are available to our Marcus customers or they're available to anybody who just wants to take advantage of them, even if they don't yet have a Marcus account. 
So if you download the Marcus app for iOS or Android, or if you go to Marcus.com, these tools, you can find entry points to them on all of those channels. Oh, so I can, uh, I'm sorry, I can sign up either way then, either on my phone or, or on my desktop. Exactly. Okay. You know, it's really easy to get started. So what Insights is, is a set of tools where you can link thousands of external accounts. And when you link them, we'll pull in transaction information, balance details, and start to really use data science to mine all that information to create beautiful visualizations and insights that we reflect back to the customer. So a couple of examples, I would say one of our most loved features across since the day I started at Clarity Money and it's holding strong with Marcus Insights is the ability to see a spending breakdown by category across all of your accounts. We hear all the time from users and certainly I know as somebody who has personal finances to manage myself, one of the most challenging things can be to get that centralized all in one place view, you know, especially starting to see insights that sort of span across your different types of accounts across different financial institutions is just, it's so powerful. We also have a feature where users can see kind of how they're doing for the month. So relative to the amount of money that, you know, they, they take home after taxes, how is their spending breaking apart? How are their recurring contributions to savings and investment accounts coming out of it? And essentially, how much money do they have left over after all of that? So you can kind of see your pie chart filling in throughout the month, and it gives you a cue of, of kind of how your month is trending. That, by the way, is my favorite feature just throughout the month as it's going on when I can look at my header behind for the month. I don't know. It makes it gives me, Melissa, a little game feel, you know, like I'm going to try to see if I can get further and further ahead. Totally. And I think like all of us, and so there's some color coding there, you know, green essentially means you're, you're on track. You still have money left over if it goes into orange, which all of us, you know, sometimes have, have months where maybe there are some unexpected expenses or, or things that throw you into a little bit of an overstate. And I know kind of when I look at the historical views of all of my months, like I, I love it when they all look green and I, I totally take your point that there's some some gamification in there that really seems to resonate with with our users. My personal favorite feature is actually we show users a cut of their um, most frequented merchants. So essentially, where did you spend the most over a certain time horizon? And something that has been so interesting to see sort of at a macro level across users and also, again, just personally, when I look at my own data is how that has shifted over the course of everything going on over the last year in the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Seeing kind of initially much less spend in dining and entertainment and sort of my grocery costs really going up, changes in how I use things like rideshare services. We've always heard from users that that feature called What Did I Spend On can really provide some aha moments. You know, we've always heard a lot of love for it. And people kind of said it, it highlighted what some called their guilty pleasure. So it would show them, this is how much you spent on your morning coffee that you pick up every day on your way to work. And people would be like, oh, wow, I didn't realize how much I was spending there. And it has been really interesting just to see how, how some of those trends have really started to change as people's habits have changed. And I'm sure we'll continue to see that trend in, in the coming months, start to see some of those, those other merchants coming back. I think that's important for most people, Melissa, but I just, that is my least favorite feature because I don't want to know how much I spend on board games. I just want to spend an unlimited amount on board games and then I'm good. That's totally fair. And I loved hearing what your favorite feature is. And that's something we really keep an eye towards is 
sharing insights in a way that is easy and is delightful and that makes people want to engage. What you just referenced is sort of the thing that we always hear our customers say is the hard part about personal finances. It can be a little overwhelming. It's not always good news. And so sort of the inertia and the not wanting to engage is one of the chief things that we're trying to help people feel more empowered around. Essentially, can we make it easy? Can we make it a little more delightful? Can we make it a little bit more fun and gamified? And you know, hopefully help people engage a little bit more, which we believe puts you on the path towards better financial decision-making. Absolutely. I think it's the fact that it's fun makes our uh, weekly money meetings with Cheryl, my spouse and I, so much, so much easier. You talked earlier about mining data and helping us with it. And I guess maybe that's a, a little bit tougher question. What data mine do you use and does Goldman Sachs use? And then second, though, for me, I know from using the app there, you give me a lot of a lot of insight into how I spend money. We talked about a little bit, but tell me about the data mining and how that works. One thing I do want to emphasize is that we recognize that data security and privacy is something that people think about, especially when they're, you know, linking their financial accounts. Obviously, that's that's top of mind and it should be. So when our customers link their accounts with us, we never see their name, name and password. We use really strong encryption. And essentially, you know, our data science team is excellent and they're always working towards making sure that they're uncovering some of the best insights. So for example, we take a lot of pride in and put a lot of work into our categorization, which is something that kind of underpins the entire experience. So we have around 20 categories. Some of those have kind of evolved over time based on feedback from users around categories that are really important to help them get a clear picture of their finances. We are always working to get better with that categorization and users can go in and edit and adjust things so that it exactly fits their mental model. As a, for instance, if you spend at Amazon, you may consider it shopping. I may consider it groceries. It's not necessarily right or wrong. We just kind of think about those categories a little differently. Sure. As an example, we look to build that back into the auto categorization going forward as we see trends in how users are, are recategorizing things. We also do predictive work around income and and entities. Our goal is that, again, we want to keep the experience very simple and easy to digest. And some of that is making sure that some of the noise that can just be inherent in details that come through a financial account are presented very cleanly to you as a person who's opening the app and looking to get some quick insights from it. That's why I noticed uh, and, and why I started using Clarity Money initially was because of the fact that it was so clean. There's clearly a lot going on under the hood, but if the goal is to get more done with it, not just have more data, just the way that you give me data. And one thing I noticed with Clarity Money, and maybe for people that aren't using Marcus Insights that also use Clarity Money, I would get great notifications, Melissa, just giving me some of the data about what's going on without me having, and it was a great way to start my day. Is Has that also flowed through for the old Clarity Money users out there? Yes, we do have some notifications and it's great to hear that you like them. We're, we're working to bring even more of those into sort of your Marcus experience. So that's awesome feedback. And then last, I, I, I'm assuming my last question on my list is usually, how do you guys make money? Obviously, you're hoping that for people that aren't Marcus customers yet, they'll have a great experience and they'll use Marcus Insights and become a Marcus customer? 
Yeah. You know, our, our mission is to build the bank of the future on your phone. And I think we very much view insights as being a step towards doing that. You know, as we mentioned earlier, Marcus Insights adds value if you're already a customer, or it's a great way to start your relationship with Marcus, which we hope will bear fruit, especially as we work on more and more, more and more product types. So we're very excited about the role it's playing within our, our ecosystem right now. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for hanging out with us for a few minutes. And by the way, everybody will link to Marcus Insights on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. Melissa, thanks so much. And I really appreciate you spending some time with us. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great afternoon. Hey, stackers. I'm your pal, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Now, that's a pretty intense topic from the crew, huh? Makes me feel like I'm not alone in all the mistakes I made. Uh, you know, forgetting to change my blinker fluid or tricking Joe's mom by putting a Mentos in the top of her Coke bottle. It just seems so, so insignificant now. But you know, a guy who has made some mistakes along the way and caused lots of collateral damage while becoming one of the wealthiest people on the planet is none other than today's birthday boy, Mark Zuckerberg. So the question is, what year was Mark born? I'll be back with your answer faster than you can add me on Facebook. Well, for those of you new to this show, not only was that a deeper conversation that we will often have in a round table, so today was a little different that way. One thing that is the same, though, is we have a trivia competition that lasts all year between our three usual contributors, and that is Paula and Len and uh, my co-host OG, who has the day off today. So, Mr. Doc G, we got the G's working together. <laughs> today. Ain't nothing but a G thing. That's right. And the good news, Doc, is that OG has seven points so far this year. Len has six. And somehow Paula is very close at five, hanging out right there. We, we got a tightly knit Paula, group. are you going to tolerate that? Are you going to tolerate that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be uh, pulling up ahead today as soon as I win this. <laughs> I, it's too early for the run-up and she's already... <laughs> Running back up. I don't know what's what's gotten into Paula. So that means though, Doc, that sadly you gotta guess first. How old is Mr. Zuckerberg turning today? I'm guessing 34. 34 years young for Mark Zuckerberg. Uh is that a is question. that yes. Was the construction of the question what year was he born or how old is he turning? <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, that's actually right. That's pretty damn funny. <laughs> that is pretty funny. I didn't even catch that. Uh, are you implying I need to listen to Doug's questions? I, I, no, no. I'm stating this is the one time I have ever actually paid attention on the Stacking Vengeance podcast. Well, we've been doing this six, seven, eight years. So I, I'm finally paying attention. After we hit you with the deepest article we've ever done. <laughs> exactly. We finally woke her up after all this time. <laughs> so uh, how old, you get to do the math there, Doc. Yeah, that would be 1987, but I'll, I'll say 1986. 1986. So right around 35. Was yeah. the year he was born. So depressing. The year I graduated from high school. <laughs> Which would make it a great year, by the way. Just, uh, yeah. Uh, Mr. Penzo, for one time, you're not setting the bar. You actually get to go second. Yeah, What's this about? It's kind of refreshing, but this is one of those, this is one of those where, you know, I think um, I was going to go with that number two. Um, you were going to go number two? 
Yeah, well, I've already done that. I'm, I'm going to have to change right after this podcast. Um, oh, my gosh. Well, is younger or older by year? I'm going to go – you said 86, Doc? Yep. yep. Boy, did he leave college early. That's what I'm trying to think because that was based on a full – my guess was a four years of college. I think he left – did he leave college early? Doc, I'm just seeing some serious Chelsea Brennaning in the works. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to lose. I'm, I'm going to be sandwiched. Is what's going to happen? Um, I'm going to say 1987. 1987, Paula. So the guesses are what 87 and 86? Is that what we have? Yes. Okay. I think that you've both guessed him to be far too young. My belief, and we will find out whether or not I am correct, my belief is that he is a little bit older than me, um, not by much, but by a few years. I am 37. I was born in 1983. And so if my belief is correct and he is a few years older than me, that means that he would have been born sometime around roughly the 1980-ish. He'd be like maybe around 40, turning roughly around 40 right now. So, since the guesses on the table are 87 and 86, here it comes. Th that means <laughs> that means that my guess will be 1985 <laughs> such that I can capture let, let me say this is unfair right now. <laughs> let me just say that this well, is welcome unfair. to my world, doc. Mm -hmm. Look, I've been getting this for weeks. They aren't even <laughs> your points though. They're OG's points. So, doc, you you're free and easy. <laughs> I might as well keep up my losing streak. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paula. So officially, what year did you think? Well, you're saying yep. 85, but what year do you think? So my official guess is 85 so that I can capture everything from the year zero through the year 1985. Yeah, but you really think uh, it's what, 81? My, my, I really think it was probably around 19, uh, approximately 1980. Like 1979, 1980, okay, 1981. Don't show off. Oh, and, and, oh, don't show off. Quit showing off. Hold All on. right, let's get, let's get to the answer. I'm going. <laughs> I, I, well, no, no, no. I wanted to ask you the same thing, Len. On the other side, I mean, you just took the the up by year. Did you think it's 87 or do you think it's a, a year after that? I thought it was 86. I really did. Oh, I, I, I was writing it down here. I thought it was 1986. Yeah. For bonus, we should go for what's his astrological sign. <laughs> I'd, well, if it's today, right? <laughs> then, then anybody who knows what the horoscopes oh, oh, are. Oh, is today his birthday? Oh, is, is that what? Is that why yes. you were having this question? Yes. Oh, I wasn't listening to that part. Okay. <laughs> Paul, well, is the, is, Paul is the only one listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd love to, to tell you uh, who the winner is, but we don't do that. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words... Your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. 
the thrill of the financial markets. Clicking the order on another day trading win. Introducing the perfect coffee for that perfect moment when you've just nailed an upside down candlestick all in move. Or that glorious time as the sun's coming up and you've pushed through the nighttime hours, trading Tokyo, Hong Kong, Frankfurt, and London exchanges, and you just barely eked out that option harness that saved your ass before your 24.50 call expired. What's the perfect coffee for that moment? Pour yourself some. I got lucky again, brew. Imagine delicious trades and a fantastic taste. Sure, you might not sleep because that caffeine combines beautifully with your betting the farm lifestyle, but heck, it's nearly worth it because you found the perfect fix to keep you motoring, staring at that monitor, waiting to squeeze out another quarter point on the VIX. Every time I push the button on another Wisdom Tree Coffee 3x daily leveraged out of the money option, I sip on my I got lucky again brew and think I got lucky again. I haven't gotten lucky in weeks, but I'm still up all night trading. Are you coming to bed? Be there in a couple hours, honey. That doesn't stop me from drinking a cup or three of I got lucky again coffee. Sure, coffee won't make you millions, but you'll feel like a million while you drink I got lucky again brew. Available now. All right, Doc, good news, bad news. The good news is if it's 1986 on the dot, you are a winner chicken dinner. You know, you think I nailed it. <laughs> I you know, deep down inside, you're like, he got it. I got your back, man. Uh, <laughs> Len, Len, 87, you're shaking your head now. I think Doc's got it. I think it's 86. All right. And Paula, you're pretty convinced he's much older. Uh, well, I'm, I think that he's older than me, which right. means that it would have to be prior to 1983. All right. Well, uh, Doug's got the answer. That's scary to say. Wait, I have one more thing. I have one more observation. How much longer is it going to be before Paula stops giving us her age? <laughs> uh, once I turn 40, that's, that's okay. when I'll. <laughs> when she's the we'll oldest go back one. To the tape. When she's the oldest one on this panel. <laughs> that's right. She, she, I, I think that's true, Len. She's going to continually <laughs> hold it over our head. How much younger than us she is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Doug, you got it from here, man. What's our answer? Trivia fans, during our trivia break, the roundtable consoled me by letting me know that it's only human to make mistakes. So what if the kitchen was destroyed after that Mentos fell in the Coke bottle? Or I mean, you know, who was to know that mom's turtle wouldn't enjoy a nice hot bubble bath? I mean, we've all made mistakes. If you're thinking that you've made too many mistakes, don't get down. I promise you, I've probably made the same mistakes you have, and twice. And that's why I'm able to bring you the best part of this top-notch podcast today. But a guy who still needs to learn how to drink water? I mean, seriously, did you see him drinking during that Senate hearing? Well, that guy's Mark Zuckerberg. So what year was old Mark born in? Despite not even being 40, he's already been able to amass a net worth of $110 billion. Not too shabby for a young buck, huh? Mark Zuckerberg just hit the ripe old age of 37, which for those of you non-math nerds out there, means he was born in 1984. Paula gets the win. 
<laughs> I'm off to make my next mistake. Whoa. I was much closer than I thought. Wow. So he's... Right. So, so we're in a, we're like within a few months of each other, myself and Mark Zuckerberg. How about and, that? Because I'm 37, born in 83. He's 37, born in 84. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And his net worth 110 billion. I know. How seriously. do you feel? You, do you feel? Do you, do I am you feel really like under. I'm so underperforming, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah, but just think about it this way: your net worths only have one comma difference in them. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe a, a few digits longer. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you still got a few months to catch him, you yeah. know, on time for, you know, Paula. Mm, right, so right, right. It. You Before. can make the difference up. Two words, Paula, Dogecoin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's uh, – before Paula's head gets too big, because she's now tied for second. When does that happen in May? Uh, Actually, I think, or we can look at it this way. She's tied for last. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's take out the magnifying glass and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to us courtesy of magnifymoney.com. When you head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnified money, you know, Doc, what you find? Boy, let me see if I can remember. You find that brick and mortar institutions, the products they carry are nowhere near best in class. I, I should not have taken a drink before I did that. <laughs> That's exactly right. So amazing. Whether it's savings accounts, checking accounts, they rate 92% of all the stuff out there that's available to you online, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. And uh, let's get some interest in your accounts, people, and stop paying fees on your checking account, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. And today we're going to help uh, Bill magnify his money. Say hi, Bill. This is Bill from Charleston, South Carolina. I've got a second question. You can add it to the other one because the other one is probably pretty short of a uh, an answer anyway. Question about barbell approach. Now, I know when I'm in the gym, if I don't equalize the barbell, I'm falling off the bench. So does that mean I have to put 50% in savings and 50% in the market? Or do I use 20% and 80%? Or do I need to use an amount? How do I set up the barbell um, and what are the ramifications of it and how can I best invest the 80% that would be invested? Thanks. Bye. Hey, Bill. Glad to have you back a second time this week because we decided to do them separately instead of all together. So uh, Bill gets two appearances on SB this week. Uh, let's, uh, let's start off talking about what the barbell approach means. Uh, Paula, you want to just give us a definition of what the barbell investing approach is for everybody so sure. that people that don't know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So common traditional personal finance advice says that you should asset allocate between stocks that have uh, stocks, bonds, like different asset classes that tend to move in ways that are not correlated with one another so that you've, you get some diversification. Um, and so the barbell approach is to remove that bond allocation from your portfolio and say, hey, on one end of my portfolio, I'm going to go into riskier assets, such as equities. But then with the other side of my portfolio, I'm going to go super safe like cash, right? So you don't necessarily need to have a bond allocation if you have essentially a bifurcated portfolio of very risky and very safe. Nice job. And 20 points for the word bifurcated. Uh, well, people looking that one up, but, uh, doc thoughts on the barbell approach. 
My thoughts is me personally, I want to have as little cash as possible that's safe, right? So for me, I want an emergency fund, which, you know, you can toggle depending on where you are in life. But a lot of people start with six months. I want enough cash to spend for the next year, maybe to cover expenses that I know are coming up or big expenses. But then I personally want to have as much money invested as possible, invested as possible. Now, the question is how aggressive that investment is. And I think that's really a personal choice for someone, depending on where you are in life, right? Are you at the beginning of your career? Are you at the end of your career? Are you in a job that you're likely to be able to keep no matter what happens, recession or no recession? Like I'm a physician. So most likely if I want to work as a physician, regardless of what's happening in the economy, I'll probably be able to have a job. So that gives me a little ability to invest a little more risky, knowing that I'll have a secure source of income. So I think there are a lot of variables there. But me personally, I'd rather keep as little cash as possible and have the rest of my money working for me. Len? You know, I, I want to, the barbell investment strategy too, and we'll, we'll go to Doc G was saying, it's, it kind of depends on where you are in life, right? If you're, if you're younger, you have time for more risk tolerance. If you're older, you have less risk tolerance. And what you can do in your barbell investment strategy is if you're younger, you can put it all into stocks and then use the barbell strictly in stocks where you have extremely risky stocks and you have extremely conservative stocks, very defensive stocks that are known to hold their value in bad times. Likewise, if you're older, you can do a barbell investment strategy in bonds where you load up on, in this case, short term versus long term. So half very short term and then the other half very long term, which are in theory safer, you know, the more safer bond than the shorter term because they're in interest rate sensitive. So um, anyway, so that's another alternative to barbell investment. Yeah. Different types of barbell investing. Right. Right. Yeah. Is there also, Paula, a type of barbell investing where you're investing in different types of real estate you've got? <laughs> you've got <laughs> you know, there could be. There could be because um, there are certainly approaches to real estate in which you're buying rental properties as essentially as as to the bond allocation of your portfolio. It is the income stream or income producing asset portion of your portfolio. And if you do it that way, you're not making any appreciation plays. You know, you're prioritizing for the, the the income stream rather than any hope of market appreciation. You are not leveraging very hard into it. You know, you're taking a more conservative approach. That would be the bond allocation of rental property investing. And by contrast, a high leverage approach and particularly a high leverage married with like hopes of market appreciation, if, if that's the strategy, then that's a far more volatile, far more equity analogous approach. And then so wrapping up really his question, though, I think is stocks and cash. So mm -hmm. what do you think about his answering that question? Yeah. So to the early part of his question where he said, hey, you know, when I'm when I'm literally lifting a barbell at the gym, it needs to be equally weighted on both sides. Uh, no, that is not the case when you are asset allocating your financial barbell. Your financial barbell can be weighted very differently. So for example, it could be 80% stocks, 20% cash, or 70% stocks, 30% cash. As to what that appropriate asset allocation is, is going to depend on, I think, three factors. His risk tolerance, which is psychological, his risk capacity, which is like logistical, and how much money are we actually talking about when we talk about cash? You know, if 
having 20% of your holdings in cash means that you've got a hundred thousand dollars or you've got, then, then that's a very different conversation than that same 20% being a million dollars, right? Which is probably more than anyone would want to hold in cash unless there's a very special circumstance. Yeah. I think to that point, beginning with what is the goal first Mm -hmm. makes the most sense to me and solve based on, instead of solving for optimal financial decision, which is going to change over time. And Len was talking about earlier how he thinks macroeconomically things may change. The piece today says that uh, there's some disturbing numbers for a lot of people out there. You just never know what's going to happen in the future, right? You just don't have any idea. Doc, does that, you know, you talked about not having much money in cash. Does that bother you that things may change and you like to not keep that much money in cash? Well, again, I think you have to look at your whole financial picture. So for me, having huge amounts of cash just isn't important because I have revenue streams. For instance, I have what Paula would call a huge real estate bond allocation. I have four properties, no mortgages on them. They may or may not appreciate, but I collect a very regular income from them in very rentable places. So I know, and then I also have some stocks that collect dividends and I kind of know what I collect every year from those. And so when you put my rental income from my dividend income, from the fact that I have a really, really stable job that is, I wouldn't say recession proof, but pretty close, that makes my need to have high cash reserves very, very low. That's going to do it, I think, for today. Uh, If you've got a question like Bill had, give us a call on the Magnified Money Line, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. We're also going to begin doing these uh, questions live. So if you'd like to uh, hang out with us, we make the show that's coming in the very near future. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Be a little intimidating, I think, (laughs) when we first start doing it live. But uh, more on that if you get the stacker, our email, stackybenjamins.com forward slash stacker. All right. uh, Let's find out what you guys all have going on. Len, we'll let you go first. What's going on at lenpenzo.com? Yes, on lenpenzo.com. What a coincidence. We're actually looking at why a high income doesn't guarantee financial freedom. And we look into that and we look in the ramifications of that and uh, how you can actually turn that around if you don't have a high income and how a low income you can have financial freedom. So it's uh, amazing that we had this topic. Perfect timing. Very perfect timing. And it was always it was always strange when I was a financial planner, Len. I would have clients that were living very handsomely on seventy five, eighty thousand dollars a year. One family had six kids and seventy five thousand dollars a year, and other families making four hundred thousand dollars a year and couldn't make ends meet. And you know, Joe, on on my site here, I have the forty thousand dollar challenge, and and now I've kind of you know this started. 12 years ago. So now it's really, I call it like the $45,000, $50,000 challenge. But we have people, and you can come to my website, uh, there's at least probably 25 of them that showed how they make ends meet and live very well on $40,000 or less, $40,000 or less. They're totally financially free. It's so, so cool and interesting that those people opened up their their financial life to, to, yeah, to show you that. It's really cool. Do you want an insight on how people do it? You come on over and take a peek. Paula, what's going on at Afford Anything? On the Afford Anything podcast, we have Wharton economics professor Katie Milkman talking about how to change. So the research-backed, evidence-based 
practices for transforming yourself from who you currently are to the idealized version of yourself, who you would like to be. Professor Katie Milkman talks to us about that. We've also got a guy by the name of Joe Salcihai, who is with us every other episode answering questions. That's crazy. And by the way, the idea of changing yourself to be the ideal. Right. Just that whole premise. Like when I was younger, that was a great premise. Now I'm like, eh, I am who I am. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, yes, yes. It's not that you're trying to be somebody different. It's just that there may be areas in your life where you would like to make improvements. Yeah. So for example, maybe you want to not drink as much alcohol. Maybe you want to eat more vegetables. Maybe you want to sleep eight hours a night instead of just six or seven. Got it. That's And that's at the Afford Anything podcast, where finer podcasts are distributed. Doc, thanks for hanging out with us. It has been my pleasure. Uh, what's going on at the Earn and Invest podcast? Because things are a-changing over there. Things are a-changing. We are slowly changing format. Earn and Invest is going to become, I think, more what I'd call almost like a news magazine. It's going to be a lot of the interesting financial topics that we've talked about before, but placing them into the context of what's happening in our world right now. We had Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen on to talk about their book about first home buying. That was yesterday. And then on Monday, we drop an episode about the ins and outs of whether you should go to business school to start a business with Simon Payne and Alan Donegan from the Rebel Business School. Awesome. And that is at the Earn and Invest podcast. Correct. Hey, hey, Doc, Doc, r right after the show, can can you stay on? I, I've got a rash. I, I really <laughs> need you to take a look at something here. I, just I want to make sure that everything's OK. Any for you, anytime. I, you know, something happened to the top of your head there. There was something there. It's gone now. I don't know. <laughs> OK, that's for the head. About. The head is fine. The head looks beautiful. It's it's the it's the other part I needed to look at. <laughs> oh, and on that note, thanks for hanging out, everybody. Doug, you got it from here, my friend. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our roundtable discussion. A lot more people have struggled financially than you're probably aware, so don't get caught up with keeping up with the Joneses. Take special care to make sure you have your own firm financial foundation. Second, has your favorite app changed? Stay on top of fintech to know how emerging tech can help you become better with money. But the big lesson... Such great advice today. I just realized two things. I can't remember the first, but the second is that I should start writing lessons down. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To learn more from Doc G, simply tune in to Earn and Invest, where finer podcasts are found. Want to hear more Paula Pant? Just check out the Afford Anything podcast. And for Len Penzo, head to... Oh, you probably figured this out by now, but for those of you first-time listeners, it's just lenpenzo.com. Big thanks to Melissa Manny from Marcus Insights for joining us. For more on Marcus Insights, type Marcus Insights into any search engine or... Find a link on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahigh, produced by Karen Rapine, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, 
Visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I do not like computer jokes. Not one bit. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Today, we're going to help Bill magnify his money. Say hi, Bill. Ah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have it synced. Are you recording? <sighs> Paul, are you backing this up? Um, oh, I'm, no. I'm recording. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, I am. I am. Okay. I'm also recording. My God, do you imagine if we had to do that whole thing over again? Oh. <laughs> okay. See if I can. <laughs> you mean that wasn't it? <laughs> That's not Bill's question, believe it or not. not Bill. <laughs> Does Paula know what that song's from? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's some cartoon that I watched when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mark Zuckerberg might not remember it, but Paula does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month, and I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.